How's everybody doing? Yeah, <laughs> there we go. Now it sounds like you had your coffee this morning. That's nice. Um, same with me. I'm doing well. It's great to be here this morning. Thankful for what God's already been doing and what God wants to continue to do in our gathering this morning and just believing that God wants to speak to us today. And whoever you are, whatever your church background has looked like, uh, maybe it's your first time in church, maybe uh, it's your 100,000th time in church. Uh, I don't know. If anybody's been in church 100,000 times, you get a gold medal. Okay, that's unbelievable. Um, but we're just thankful to have you here, and I believe that God wants to speak to you right where you're at as well. I just want to underscore something that Victoria said uh, a moment ago, which is I have one of Pastor PJ's books here, Wisdom from the Wild. Look at that. It's like a, you might have been thinking like, I don't like to read, okay? Uh, this is like a coffee table book. Lot, look at this. Lots of nice photos that PJ took and not too much text. I guarantee if you sat down with this for about an hour, you could read the whole thing and you can brag to people that you've already read an entire book in January. How good does that sound? It goes quick, right? Um, but honestly, it's a great book and you're not going to want to miss uh, this Saturday. I know that PJ is going to be bringing some of his hunting stuff here, including like a like a bear skin. I don't know what your feelings are on any of that stuff, but like, if you want to see like a bear, come and check that out. Uh, come for the bear, stay for whatever, wisdom from the wild. Uh, Victoria called it wisdom in the wild, and I would just like to say that his own daughter got the title wrong. Uh, so wisdom from the wild, and it's going to be at 7, 7 p.m. Saturday night. Honestly, you're not going to want to miss it. Uh, it's going to be a really great time. And, uh, and come and check out this Cool book. Any wilderness people in here? Like you love the wilderness? Some people. Cool. Nobody in the entire church. I know that's a lie. Uh, but I I'm telling you, I read this book and I feel like I grew more chest hair after. I just felt like, yeah, I'm a little more manly than before. It was amazing. Uh, the reality is just before I read this, I was reading this. I was in Stockholm this week. I was reading this magazine and literally the subtitle on the magazine was a magazine for city boys. <laughs> I immediately like threw that thing in the trash, went into the woods, chopped some wood and started a fire and felt immediately better. And thanks to wisdom from the wild for that. Um, but actually there's much more in it than just that as well. So uh, be here Saturday night. It's going to be uh, a really great night. Excited for it. Just like an hour. Uh, I'm going to interview PJ and uh, we're going to have a good time. Does that sound good? Cool. All right. Uh, why don't we turn in our Bibles this morning? Uh, why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 to 24. I'm going to read this to us today to set up sort of the theme that we're talking about. Often in our church, we go through um, a book of the Bible at a time, and we kind of take it one verse at a time. But to start this year, uh, last week and this week, uh, have been more of a, a thematic teaching uh, on identity and who we are and how to be who we are, actually. And I think that that's a good way for us to begin the new year, uh, a time when so many things in our world are saying, like, new year, new you. Be the best you you can be. And I think all of that's great. I don't mind that messaging. But the question is, what does it even mean to be the best us? And who is the new me that I am becoming? And what does any, uh, any of this have to do with, with who we are in Christ? And so we've been looking at kind of thematically at what this means for us, and we're going to continue on that direction this morning. And so why don't we read from Matthew 4, 18 to 22. It's on the screen, but I'm going to read it to us today. It says this. 
As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. If you're taking notes this morning, you can uh, title this message, uh, How to Be Who You Are, Part Two, Dealing with Your Shadow Side. Why don't we pray and get into the rest of this today? Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and um, I don't know what everybody's week has looked like, Lord, but you know. And Father, I just ask that this would be a moment of uh, refilling, that this would be a moment where through your word, we encounter you, we learn what it is to, to be like you, how to be your hands and feet in this world. And so, Father, I just ask that we would be able to pause in this moment. We'd be able to hear your voice speak to us. And in the busyness of our lives, that this would just be a a moment of illumination for us, truly, from your word. So speak to us this morning. We have ears to hear, Lord. In your mighty name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Praise God. Uh, There's a writer named uh, David Brooks. And in his book, which is called The Road to Character, he talks about the difference between things that he labels as resume or CV virtues versus eulogy virtues. And and here's kind of what, what he means by that. Resume virtues are the things that you put on your resume, that you put them on your CV. Uh, the, these are the types of things that you have achieved. They're the kinds of things that you do. So you write on your resume, you know, um, I graduated from this school. Uh, I'm proficient at Microsoft Excel or whatever. <laughs> uh, any like Microsoft Excel freaks in the place, like that's your, you love it. You people, first of all, the world runs on you people. Thank you. Because it's like a, speaking a different language to me. So you're amazing. Um, but these are the things you, 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 know, you put on your CV. I saw one example of a CV that one time that said, none of my references like me, so don't listen to anything they say. <laughs> Which is like, wait a minute, maybe don't like put them as references, but whatever. Um, so these are the things that you've accomplished. These are the things that you do. But a eulogy virtue, on the other hand, this is who you are. These are the things that are said about you at your funeral. It's like, oh, that that person, they were honest. They were loving. They were committed to their family. They were joyful. They were a good friend. And I don't think that any one of us in this room uh, wants to one day have somebody get up at our funeral and simply say, well, they were good at Microsoft Excel. (laughs) Those are not the things that we want to have remembered of us in that way. And yet we spend so much of our lives focusing on the things that we do and the things that we achieve and the things that we accomplish as being the place from which we get our identity and our purpose and our meaning from in our lives. When at the end of the day, when it comes to our funeral, we hope that nobody says those things about us. 
We don't want those to be the defining factors of our lives. Last week, I spoke about who we are in Christ. We looked at Ephesians. We looked at where Paul outlines all of these identity markers that tell us who we are in Christ, that we are saved, that we are in Christ, that what's true about Jesus is true about us, now in part, later in full, but that in Christ we are victorious, we're beloved, and so on, and that we, as followers of Jesus, will spend the rest of our lives learning to be who we already are in Christ. Do you remember that? I use this example of me and Victoria on our wedding day, and on that wedding day, I became a husband. Now, I, was, I didn't know anything about being a husband on that day, but I became a husband. And since then, I have been better and worse at being a husband, but my status as husband hasn't changed, and I will spend the rest of my life as a husband learning how to be who I already am. And that's true of us who live in Christ. Those of us in Christ spend the rest of our lives learning what our identity in Christ actually is, but we are in Christ. But a part of learning who we really are in Christ requires us to get a little bit of self-awareness. And I generally think of myself as being somewhat (laughs) self-aware, I guess. Um, But every now and then, it's like I come into contact with somebody who is totally not self-aware at all. I'm sure that you've met those people before. I remember one one time, a few years ago, I was having coffee with somebody. And I remember this person was just complaining and complaining and complaining about their coworker forever. They were saying, like, the worst things about this person. Finally, they stopped and they said, anyways, I would say it to their face, but I'm just too nice. (laughs) And I was like... I don't know if you are, actually. You might want to rewind that and rethink that. Totally self-unaware uh, of who they were, you know? I knew another guy, and this guy had no job. This guy had no ambition. This guy lived with his parents way longer than he should be living with his parents. This guy took no responsibility for anything. And nevertheless, he thought he was God's gift to women on this earth, okay? And yet he was complaining to me, and he couldn't understand why he couldn't get a girlfriend. (laughs) And I was like, dude, you are totally, uh, you are not self-aware at all, man. Like, get some self-awareness here. I think that self-awareness is really important if we want to learn who we are and who we are becoming in Christ. Because it's hard to begin that journey of being formed into the image of Christ if we don't know who we are, where we're at, where we're starting from. The basic idea of the sermon this morning is that our self-awareness has a direct impact on our relationship with God. Not only that, but on our relationship with others and even our relationship with ourselves. This is not a new concept. Many teachers throughout church history have recognized the importance of self-awareness in our discipleship to Jesus. Um, Augustine in the fourth century uh, wrote, may I know you, may I know myself. John Calvin in the opening line of his Institutes of Christian Religion, arguably one of the most important works in the history of the Western church, said there is no deep knowing of God without a deep knowing of self and no deep knowing of self without a deep knowing of God. Over and over throughout uh, history, teachers of Jesus have said that you can't get far on the path of discipleship without discovering something about your identity and your calling. And this is tricky in our culture today because we live in a world that's having an identity crisis. 
Today, there's option after option after option of who you want to be. You can create and then recreate and recreate and recreate yourself however many times you want into basically anything that you want. You can express your true self until your, until your true self shifts, and then you, there's another true self that you want to uh, represent yourself by, and then you just reinvent yourself once again. You know, I'm from Canada, but when I was 18 years old, I moved to Australia uh, on my own. I went to Bible college, and I realized when I moved there that there's not a single person that knew me before I was 18 years old, and uh, I had an opportunity at that moment to be whoever I wanted to be. And I was like, I wonder if I should reinvent myself into something. You know, who do I want to be while I'm here? Do I want to be a guy who wears hats all the time? Do, is that who I want to become? Like, what do I want to be here in Australia? I didn't become a guy who wore hats all the time, uh, that's for sure. In, in fact, in many ways, I look back, apparently, I didn't even know it. I wanted to be Swedish. And here I am, like 15 years later, and a uh, new identity. There you go. Um, but identity, I, I think, is something that many of us can struggle with in various ways. But... Something very important for us to understand this morning is that ultimately your identity is not something that you create, it's something that you receive from your creator. It's not something that you make up, it's something that you, you continually discover as you follow Jesus. And who you're becoming in Christ is not just something that you accomplish for yourself, it's not through the things that you do, it's not something that, uh, you know, you achieve and then you brag about it to everybody. No, it's a gift that you receive from heaven. And so we've got this journey of discovery to go on as followers of Jesus. And I think there's no better guide on this journey than Jesus. We read at the beginning from Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 to 22. I'm going to read it to us again, and I'm going to take note of an important word in here. Uh, this is a great passage of scripture. We broke this passage uh, down or this, this story down from Mark's gospel in great detail in the summer in our Gospel According to Mark series. If you missed it, go back in our podcast and check that out. We really went through it deeply. But I want to just look at it um, a little more quickly today. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. The important word to note here in this is the word called. Jesus called them. Now, this means more than just like Jesus shouted over, hey, you. You know, sometimes we, we just think about it that way or, you know, Jesus, whatever, called them on the phone or something or whatever we think of called being today. But the word is actually so much more deep than that. And really, we have this idea of calling from Jesus and it, it, in many ways comes from this. But this word also, it, it means to invite. It's an invitation that Jesus is offering these people, an invitation to a journey and that journey is to follow Jesus. And it's the same invitation that Jesus offers to every single one of us in this room here today. Come, follow me. And so in reading this, on one level, we see that our calling is, as disciples of Jesus, to follow him. But this implies that there's some type of journey that we are to go on. And so turn with me a couple of chapters forward to Matthew 9, 
verse 9. Matthew 9, verse 9 to 13, it'll be on the screen. Uh, it, It says this, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at, at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have, come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Notice, who is it that Jesus calls? Sinners. And in this story, there is one particular sinner who Jesus calls, and his name is Matthew. It's the same Matthew Uh, who's the author of the gospel that is sitting open before us right now. But Matthew, in following Jesus, went on a journey from being Matthew the tax collector to being Matthew the gospel writer. On one hand, as Christians, our calling is to simply follow Jesus, yes. But also inherent in following Jesus means that there's a journey that we have to go on. And this is the journey of becoming who we are in Christ. It's the journey of real self-discovery, of receiving our identity from Christ as we are in Christ. It's the journey of rejecting the labels that the world would like to place on us. And instead, it's learning from Jesus who we really are in him and who we are becoming in him. This is real transformation of our character from the inside out. But as soon as we set off on this journey, we hit a wall the dreaded wall. Is anybody in here a runner? You like to run? Where are, you, where are the runners at? Come on, I know. Yeah, you guys are, yeah, of course. You're gonna be like, yeah, my hand is up. I'm a runner. I'm a runner. I'm amazing. Uh, you know, I just say, God help you, okay? <laughs> um, if you do much running, especially marathon running or anything like that, you know that at some point you hit the wall. And this is the point where you don't think that you can possibly go on anymore. It's like your legs feel that they weigh 10 tons each, and at the same time, they feel like they're jello or something like that, and every step feels like a major triumph for you, but you're going, you start to even doubt that there is a finish line or anything like that. Different runners hit this point at different times. Uh, Many marathon runners hit this at around the 28-kilometer mark. Uh, Or if you're like me and you run, you hit it at the 28-meter mark, and you're like, why did I do this? I'm going home. Uh, Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Glory. I always love the things I get an amen for in church, you know? I love saying, the Lord is victorious, you know? And then I say, you know, I get tired at the 28-meter mark. Praise God. Amen. It's the best. Let's be real. Uh, I get that. I I get that. But it's similar on the journey of faith. We also hit a wall. And sometimes we hit the same wall many times. That wall has a name. It's called sin. Sin is a loaded word for many people. I understand that. Maybe you grew up in a church environment that was less than healthy and sin was used as a manipulative tool to scare you into proper Christian behavior. And maybe as soon as I say the word sin, you tune me out. You're like, I don't want to listen to anything (laughs) that he has to say. I understand. But let's take a deep breath for a moment and 
try and set that aside if we can. Because I think on one side, we live in a culture that appropriately has tried to correct for some of the guilt and shame that in many ways is a result of medieval Christianity, actually. But at the same time, we live in a culture that so often denies sin as even a thing. We don't want to talk about sin. We underplay the reality of sin in our world and in our lives. And we say, come on, can't we just go to church and just be encouraged? I just want to go to church, be encouraged, be entertained for a little while, and go home. Isn't that enough? Like, I put my time in. Uh, pastor, encourage me. Let me go home. I'll see you next week. But don't you dare say anything about sin in my life. That makes me uncomfortable. And I get that. I feel the same way. I'd rather just be reminded about how good I am all the time. I really would. That would be awesome. I would love to be like, look, okay, I'm great all the time. Wow, there's nothing wrong with me. If I believe that soon enough, I probably will start to think, wow, I don't even need a savior at all. Jesus, I don't even know why you came. You maybe came for those other people, but apparently not for me because my wife tells me how great I am all the time and I'm perfect. And so if I ever need an encouragement, mom, how's it going? Oh, I'm the best ever. I'm, I'm perfect. Great. Thanks, mom. Jesus, thanks for dying for everybody else, but I'm good. So that's all right. And we have to be careful of falling into that trap of just feeling like everything's always good all the time, uh, no matter what. And I think that, it, yeah, it's important to understand what we're saved to, which is a life and an identity of victory and freedom and joy and purpose. Yes, but we also have to understand what it is that we are saved from. And we live in a world that, quite honestly, seems surprised that there are terrible things happening. We turn on the news and, uh, you know, we, we see terrible things that are taking place in our world, and people are shocked all the time. They're like, how could that possibly even happen? But we live in a fallen world, one that is wrecked by sin. However, uh, our, our post-Christian culture has accepted the lie so often that we can have the kingdom of God without the king, that all we need is the right political party, all we need is the right education. All we need is the right social welfare system and so on and so on, and then we'll be good. And listen, I'm all for those things. Great. I'm, I'm not against them at all. They're not bad things. But at the end of the day, if that's all that we're relying on, we're going to keep on coming up against the wall in our lives, which is called sin. And we live in this world that wants all the fruit of the kingdom of God. We want justice. We want peace. We want welfare, we want forgiveness, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, at the same time, we reject the king that gives those things to us. We reject the king whose presence brings those traits into existence. You don't have to be a genius to recognize that there's a part in all of us that is not as it should be. Uh, we're a little bent out of shape. At least I am. Um, see if you can relate to this. Romans 7, 15. Paul writes, I do not understand what I do. Anybody else? <laughs> I do not understand what I do. I find myself saying that almost daily. Why did I do that? Oh, Luke, you're an idiot. What's, what are you, I do not understand what I do, Paul says. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I mean, Paul, yeah, I can relate, dude. I get it. I do some things that I don't want to do. And I don't do other things that I want to do. And then even when I actually do the right things that I want to do, my motives are not always right anyways. <laughs> 
In other words, I do the right things for the wrong reason. And this is the wall that we so often hit as followers of Jesus. Look, we can stand here in church and we can look to the horizon and we can see who we're becoming in Christ. We can get excited for what I preached about last week and all these traits that Paul outlines of who we are in Christ. And we, we taste it now and we'll experience it in full, absolutely. And we're excited about it. And we're like, yes, I want to be that person that can do the right thing in the right way at the right time. But in between where you are and where you see yourself potentially being able to get to, there are a million little obstacles called sin that we've got to overcome. What is sin? I think there's many ways of defining it. But for the sake of this morning, I think that ultimately you could boil sin down to being a failure to trust God. It's a failure to trust God and to trust his definition of good and evil. It's to set aside God's goodness and to take the place of God ourselves in our life. It's to swap out created and creator. It's to think that we know better than God, to become our own gods. This was the original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. It's to redefine good and evil for ourselves. But this is to live in such a way that ultimately, in the end, leads us to death. When we sin, we are complicit in, we are a part of our own destruction and disturbance of joy and our disturbance of our own wholeness. Sin is a blockade. It cuts you off from God himself. It cuts us off from intimacy with the Father. Paul writes in Ephesians of those uh, who do not know God and, and kind of... The, the state of our hearts. It says they are darkened, in Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. When we reject God, and when we allow sin to reign in our lives, it hardens our hearts to God and his presence. It's a blockage, it's a distance, it's an emotional, a spiritual distance And it's important to think of sin not just like in a legalistic way of what's right and what's wrong, but in a relational way. It's not just breaking the law, like, oh, I went two kilometers over the speed limit. It's a breach in relationship. It's a blockage from all the glorious life that comes from the Father. And it can seem sort of hopeless for us. Look what the Apostle Paul also says in Romans 7, verse 21. He says, So I find this law at work. This is after he said what I said before. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. I'm so thankful for Paul's honesty here. (laughs) Who will rescue me? from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Praise God. What a hope-filled verse for you and I today. Thanks be to God. How do we deal with this sin problem? It is through Christ. And when we are in Christ, then we are delivered and we are equipped to overcome that sin that so easily entangles and to run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus in the words of Hebrews. Jesus compares sin that we, to an illness that we need healing from. And uh, 
You know, this is what it means for us to be saved, by the way. The word for salvation in the New Testament, the original Greek it was written in, is the word sozo. And this means to be saved, but it also means at the exact same time to be healed. To be saved is to be healed from the sickness of sin in our lives. It means to be made healthy and whole in Christ. So as we go on this journey of understanding who we are in Christ, at some point we got to go up against sin in our lives. And by sin, I don't just mean behavior. And this is important because I think that so quickly Christians are, Christians can be so quick to just preach a, a gospel of behavior modification. It's just like a list of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do this, whatever. You know, like my grandma's grew up. You know, you better not be in a movie theater when Jesus comes back, <laughs> that kind of thing, uh, wh- whatever. You know, and it's just like, this list of rules and do's and don'ts and everybody's looking for what is the list of rules, what, it, what is all this kind of stuff. And listen, of course, there are some things that we shouldn't do, but our motivation for not doing those things should not be because it's like a list of rules, but it should be because we love God so much that internally we're motivated so that sin doesn't even look tempting, it looks gross in our lives because we don't want anything to get in between our relational intimacy with the Father. There's a writer named Robert Mulholland, and he takes this idea, actually from many early church fathers, about four layers of sin that you and I need to deal with. And I think they're great. The first is gross sins, he calls them. These are the big ones. These are the biggies. These are the things that every single one of us in this room, we're like, yeah, I understand that. Uh, These are the things that Paul outlines in Galatians 5, things like sexual immorality, hatred, selfish ambition, so on and so forth. These are the things that even if you're not a follower of Jesus, in the culture at large, people would say that's wrong. Murder. I think you go ask most people on the street, hopefully they're going to say murder is wrong. It's not okay. Um, and so these are the, the, the parts of our lives that are most clearly inconsistent with God's will for us. And these are the things we're already aware of. We know that these things are wrong. The second layer, though, is something called deliberate sins. And these are the types of behaviors that are normal and accepted in our culture, but Scripture and the Spirit of God tells us that they are not part of God's will for our wholeness. Um, for instance, Scripture's norms for sexual behavior and sexual expression are much more strict than today's cultures. Um, Pornography, for example. Uh, In culture, not that big of a deal. Um, And it takes many forms. You know, you watch porn for a half hour, it's like that's hard pornography. You watch it for 20 seconds, it's called the newest movie on Netflix, you know. But it's doing the same thing, which is making, turning people into objects of lust, dehumanizing people stripping away the dignity that is inherent to them as people made in the image of God. Uh, Culture says it's okay. I knew a couple once, a married couple. They were going through some difficulties in their marriage, and they sought out marriage counseling uh, at a a secular therapeutic uh, counseling center when we were living in Canada. And the counselor directed them that, hey, if you want to save your marriage, you as a couple should probably start watching porn together. It's outrageous. Culture says this is okay. Scripture says that's not the answer. These are deliberate sins. I think there's so many more than just that materialism. Society says get more. Uh, Scripture says that's not the point of life. Gossip. 
um, so many things that society is cool with, but just isn't the way of Jesus that you and I need to deal with in our lives. And we don't just need to apply some cheap grace to it and say, well, God's saved, so who cares? <laughs> I'm covered by the grace of the blood of Jesus. That's cheap grace. Paul talks about that. The third layer, maybe you're like, that's cool, I don't do any of that. Uh, just wait. <laughs> the third layer is unconscious sins. It's where it gets more difficult. Over time, as you follow Jesus, uh, I think in love, he starts to reveal to us the ugly parts of ourselves that we didn't even know that we had. <laughs> Our blind spots, so to speak. Internal things very often. So if the gross sin is murder and the deliberate sin is yelling at someone, the unconscious sin is seething with contempt and hatred for a person in your heart. We can let that go under the surface for years. I'm thankful that with me, uh, God seems to be gracious enough to reveal these things to me slowly, not all at once, but only as I'm able to deal with them. And these are not only sins of commission, those things that we do that are deliberate sins, but these are sins of omission, which is not doing what we should do. Um, this is where uh, issues of motivation come in, right? So again, it's doing the right things for the wrong reasons, all of that. But God moves slowly here. I think this is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit within us, which is when God's Spirit works to reveal these ugly areas of ourselves that we can deal with, that we can sacrifice, that we can crucify the flesh, put it to death so that we can become more Christ-like. And the fourth and the last one, it's one of the hardest ones, it's our trust structures. And here's what I mean by that. These are the inner leanings of ourselves, the inner posture of who we are, these things that don't rely on God. Believe in God in some way, but ultimately if there's a problem, we don't go to God, we go to us. We don't need God to solve it, I'll solve it, thank you very much. Now notice, of these four that I just outlined, only two of them have anything to do with our behavior. And if all you deal with when it comes to sin is your behavior, good, but you're not where you need to be. At best, you might be a Pharisee. The Pharisee were these teachers of the law in the New Testament. Jesus often came head to head with them. Um, and the Pharisees, they were really well behaved, really well behaved. But despite their being well behaved, they were self-righteous. They hadn't been transformed from the inside out. And the reason for their good behavior was not actually to honor God, but it was actually just mainly to look good. And I've met so many Christians that try to outwardly modify their behavior as if that's all that's necessary. And again, while that's good, it's better to deal with the motivation of the heart, the motivation of bad behavior, uh, than just the action itself. And dealing with the motivation, digging down into these layers means that we deal with our shadow side. Now, shadow side is not language from Scripture, but I think it's helpful. It's language that I came into contact with through a great pastor named Pete Scazzaro. He's the author of a, a best-selling book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which defines the shadow side as the accumulation of untamed emotions or less than pure motives and thoughts that, while largely unconscious, they strongly influence and shape your behaviors. It's the damaged but mostly hidden version of who you are. It's the behind the scenes of your life. You know, we can all stand up and say, this is what I have to offer the world. 
But at the same time, so often there's a flip side to every one of us uh, that tempts us away from the path of Jesus. And we've all got strengths and weaknesses, and they're often related. Um, I have done in my short years of ministry about a thousand personality tests. (laughs) I love personality tests. I always wonder if there's a personality type that just loves to take personality tests because whatever that is, that's me. And uh, even if there's like one of those lame quizzes somewhere on the internet, like, I don't know, which ice cream flavor are you? I'm doing that test, okay? Like immediately, it's the best. Um, But some things that I've discovered about myself are some strengths and weaknesses that I have as a pastor and as a person. Um, So here are some of the strengths, and then I'm going to share with you on the flip side, the shadow side, some of the weaknesses that I deal with as well. So some strengths of myself. Um, I'm driven to accomplish goals as a person. I'm highly motivated. I'm confident in my own skills, sometimes overly confident. Uh, (laughs) I'm enthusiastic. I'm self-assured. Great. All strengths, good. Um, And I can read that and be like, wow, what an amazing person I am. Why don't we stop there? Let's pray. And everybody said, amen. (laughs) But there's a shadow side to all of this. And we all have that. Because attached to all of these strengths are the shadow weakness of each one. So for instance, here are some of my weaknesses, if I can get totally just vulnerable with you. I'm too concerned with personal image. I'm very often unable to accept failure. Certainly for myself. I am my own harshest critic. I avoid my own feelings. <laughs> Victoria's always like, what are you feeling? I'm like, I don't, what? Does not compute, <laughs> you know, short circuit. It's like, I don't know what a feeling is, you know. <laughs> um, I can be perceived as insensitive. I can be perceived as, and not only perceived as, but am overly competitive. These are some of the shadow sides of me that, well, the light side can actually be a great tool. The shadow side, if I'm living in that, My goodness, it can strangle the life out of me. And the list is way longer than that. I don't know what the list is for you, but if you were to sit and maybe get honest with yourself, and maybe that's something you should do this week, sit down with a pen and paper. Try and be hyper honest with yourself to just list some of the things that you might deal with. But our shadow side is often motivated by what the Apostle Paul calls our flesh that part of ourselves that is bent away from God. It's the persona that we live into. It's not who we are in Christ. It's the mask we put on. And the the danger is if we live with that mask for long enough, pretty soon we forget that we're wearing a mask at all. And it becomes who we are. And as followers of Jesus, we need to take off the mask. We need to face our shadow side head on so that we can step into our true identity and calling in Christ. So how do we do that? I think there's many ways, many things that could be said. But I just want to focus on like one thing we can do today before we dismiss. And so turn with me to one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Turn with me to Philippians 4, starting at verse 4 to 7. There's a great theologian named Benedict Rochelle, and he says that mature faith is a decline in anxiety and an increase in peace. And I've seen that as a reality in my life, that as I've matured in faith or as my faith is being expressed in a mature way, I find myself less anxious in life and more at peace. And of course, this is exactly what Paul is saying in Philippians 4, verse 4 to 7. I'm going to read it to you, and hopefully it can be an encouragement to us this morning. Paul says, Philippians 4, verse 4 to 7, Rejoice in the Lord 
always. I will say it again, rejoice. Maybe you need to rejoice a little bit today. Maybe you've been going through life and you're just like defeated down and out. Maybe the new year hasn't started the way that you need it to. I want to encourage you, rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always. Paul uses this word always a lot and it frustrates me. Always, like Paul, dude, come on, man. Rejoice always, like, what are you talking about? Always, always, or sometimes always, you know? Like, I'm cool to rejoice always sometimes, (laughs) but maybe not all the time. And don't be anxious about anything. Paul, dude, chill, man. (laughs) I don't know if you were feeling extra good that day or what, what was going on. How about I won't be anxious about some things some of the times, but inevitably I'll end up being anxious about a lot of things most of the time, if that's the case. But really, Paul, why not just tell us to rejoice and to not be anxious? What's the deal with the always and the anything? Like, how about you let us decide when this does and does not apply, Paul? That would be nice. But we got to remember, Paul knows what he's talking about here. He's not saying this theoretically because uh, he says just a, a couple of verses later in 4 verse 12 to 13, he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is all the more powerful when we remember that it was written by Paul when he is sitting in a Roman dungeon and doesn't know what the next day brings for him. Paul is not writing abstractly or theoretically. He is communicating a truth that he has learned through years of faithful discipleship to Jesus. So Paul says, rejoice always. When we rejoice always, we live in a state of constant awareness of the goodness of Christ. Rejoicing always is a statement of trust in Jesus. We trust that God is good no matter what the situation. And in all things, we can rejoice because we know that we are in Christ. So I don't know what you may be facing here today. I don't know what sickness, what setback, what difficulty, what wall, what you're up against today. Can I encourage encourage you this morning to have a heart, a spirit that is rejoicing always in the goodness of Jesus Christ because he is worthy of it. Now, this is not a magic formula to escape a tough situation. That's not what I'm saying. What Paul is urging us to do here is to recognize the reality of the situation that we're facing, but to live our lives as if we live according to a different reality that our identity and our value as Christians, as people in Christ, does not come from our performance or our position in the world. It comes from a vital and living relationship with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Rejoice always, and don't be anxious about anything. Anything. If you're like me, you get anxious when you can't control something when life spins out of control because of sickness or other issues or whatever it may be, I can get super anxious. But really, this comes down to often a symptom of my not trusting in God. 
It's the result of my needing to look out for myself for guidance and for happiness. And I become imprisoned by my need to control things. And if I live this way, I'm always going to be limited to the fragile shell of my own order and control of anxiety and fear and doubt and despair and so on and so forth. But there's a better way. There's a radical alternative that doesn't remove us from the difficulties of life, but empowers us to be content in any and every situation, knowing how to face hunger and plenty and abundance and want. And I think that by prayer and petition, as we present our requests before God, this causes us to acknowledge the fact that we rely on Jesus. We have to constantly turn ourselves towards God. And then the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And it allows us to live in a new way in this old world. We can rest assured of who we are in Christ. We can live a life of trust and utter dependence on him. We can face sin and overcome it. We can become who we really are as we surrender ourselves and as we trust the Father. We become more self-aware and therefore more able to recognize all those points of unlikeness to Christ in our lives, but allows us to deal with it, to do something with it, and to be formed into the image of, the, of Christ for the sake of others. So one last thing this morning as we land this plane, you gotta remember today, whoever you are, yeah, we deal with our sin, but you are not your sin. You are a beloved son. You are a beloved daughter of the Father. And it's only out of the safe place of our identity being rooted in Christ, not in what we do or don't do, but in Christ and in who we're becoming in Christ, that we have the freedom to be who we're becoming. Why all this focus on sin this morning? Um, Quite simply, you can't change what you're unaware of. Uh, Jesus would say, come, take up your cross and follow me. That's a really hard passage of scripture. This is an invitation to die in order to live, to die to our sin, to die to our shadow side, to die to our false self, to bury all of that, to crucify that, and to come out the other side in life because on the other side of the cross is an empty tomb. There is victory, there is life, there is purpose, There's so much more for you today. But I want to encourage you at the beginning of this year, let's get this right. Let's recognize areas of sin in our life and let's, through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, crucify our flesh and be formed into the image of Jesus for the sake of others that his name might be glorified.